Hello. Hey, Nora. How are you? Okay, thank God. How are you? I'm doing good. Good. Good to see you. I think Tehila ended the meeting, so everyone has to come back in. No, I, I saw that. I was I came into the meeting and I saw everyone and then it said host ended meeting. Oh, here we go. We're getting there slowly. Does it usually go without it just continues if you don't end the meeting? Sorry, you were cutting out. What did you say? I'm saying if she wouldn't have uh, pushed end meeting, it would have just continued on the same meeting? I think it can, but I know Rifka Marga said that they are asking the teachers to like break in between meetings because for the recordings, um, like I know that there's like two hour long recordings if it's two teachers. If, like, if you just switch in the meeting, then the recording just keeps going. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. Hi, Dee. I see a couple more people here. Hey. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Okay. Thank God. Hi, ladies. So we've got Hannah Tivian. Who's with you? Hey, hey, it's Jamie. It's Hi, Jamie. Oh, I see. And Sarah. Oh, amazing. We're in the Maya Note apartment. Amazing. Wow. We're ready to do it. <laughs> I bought my first Tehillim yesterday. Amazing. Oh, amazing. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's so cool. I'm so excited. Which one did you get? Um, it's like, here, I'll show you. I'll get it. How are you? Okay, thank God. It's like the. Well, I think it's how many are you? Is that everyone in the apartment? Four girls. She got this one. This one. Four girls. Very nice. It's a Chabad Tehillim, I see, right? Yeah. What's the difference? Where did yeah. you. No, just the okay. translations are different. Oh, so it's like they're all, I got it at, um, it's called like the Hechel Menachem. Hechel Menachem? Yeah. I think like the Uma. I really like this one. Me too. These are the ones that my very different. Yeah, that one's so nice. Mm. Okay. Hadass, do you have a favorite translation? Well, that's a great question. Generally, for the whole Tanakh, I really like the JPS translation, the Jewish Publication Society. Um, last I checked online, which was a few years ago, they didn't have the new version. I think it was from 1917 online. They might have a new one by now, but it was very old English. But what's, what's uh, sold in the stores, um, the JPS, is, is quite good. I really like it because... 
and some more literal translation. And it's closer from my experience to the Hebrew. The Chabad one is quite good as well. I very much like it, also online. Um, I, I once said, I think, to, to your group that, that there's the art scroll one. And a teacher of mine, like 20 years ago, told, said to me, which I agree with, he said, it's, it's a bad translation because it's too good, meaning it's got too much interpretation in the translation. It's not as literal. Um, so if you're not reading in the Hebrew, at least I prefer a, a translation that's closer to, to Hebrew. Uh, so that's why I like the JPS and Chabad is quite good as well. Um, so enjoy your new You should use it in good health and for good tidings, and it should bring you much joy and comfort and connection. <laughs> Ami, thank you. Um, okay. Okay, so we're going to start. Uh, today we're going to look at Tehillim chapter 16. Everyone can hear me well? Thumbs up? Sarah, can you hear me? Yes, great. Okay. Um, let me know if there's a problem during. Um, so chapter 16, um, because I think it touches on the last week's Parsha, we spoke about Kedoshim, and this is something that comes up here. Um, and I think it's something that's very relevant to, to every day. Um, so I'm gonna share my screen. We're gonna first look as we usually do at the, at the text. Okay. Do I? Okay. Sorry, one second. Okay. So chapter 16, Tehillim Tetzain. So I'm reading. Michtam of David, guard me, O God, in whom I take refuge. You should say to Hashem, you are my Lord or my master. I have no good but in you. For the holy ones who are in the earth and the mighty ones in whom is all my delight. Of those who hasten after another increase. I will not pour their libations of blood, nor will I tear upon my lips. Hashem is my allotted portion and my share. You hold my lot. Pleasant portions have fallen upon me, and I have a goodly inheritance. I will bless Hashem who counsel me. Even at night, my conscience instructs me. I have set Hashem always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will falter. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My flesh also dwells in safety. For you shall not forsake my soul to the grave. You shall not allow your pious ones to see the pit. You shall let me know the way of life, the fullness of joys in your presence. There is pleasantness standing at your right hand forever. Okay, I'm going to give you... So I usually do when we have class, I'm gonna give you um, a minute to look at it again. Okay, so 
So today, I mean, I'm still kind of trying to figure out um, the best um, kind of way to use Zoom. I realized that for me, I'm used to have free discussion in class. Um, and so I would love for you to take a bigger part today um, and to have more discussion. You can unmute at any time and ask a question. Um, I realized at the end of last week's session, I was like, wow, it was so quiet the whole time and only at the end, for the most part, we had uh, people participating. Um, and very hard for me to hear myself for a whole hour. Um, I'm not used to doing it that way. Um, I think it's much more meaningful to, to take it. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure out the best way to do it and I, and I, and I wanna do a little more of that today. Um, so, sorry, I'm gonna move this to the side, okay. So I'm going to start with the first line, Michtam of David. Michtam is one of those words, again, at the first line, the first verse of Tehillim that the commentators grapple with. They're not sure what it necessarily means. Um, one example of, uh, first of all, I'm going to say that Michtam, the word Michtam appears in a few other beginnings of Tehillim. It appears also in chapters 56 through, um, through 60. Um, Rashi says that perhaps it's one of the different melodies for the Tehillim, as we know, I think I said this last week, um, we used to have this very rich, beautiful tradition um, that the Levites would sing and uh, play different instruments during the service while the priests were sacrificing. And unfortunately, that whole um, tradition has been lost to us. So Rashi suggests that perhaps it's one of the types of melodies, and that's why it appears um, in five or six different, um, the beginnings of five or six chapters. Um, another idea, it comes from the Aramaic translation from the word michtam. When you look at the Aramaic tra translation, it says galifa, which means an etching. Uh, so perhaps it was etched in these verses, these chapters. Um, and one last idea that I saw was from the word michtam, from the word ketem. In modern day Hebrew, it means a stain, but in biblical Hebrew, it meant uh, precious gold. So perhaps it was written in gold, perhaps the message uh, metaphorically is like gold, maybe it was written in gold. So these are some ideas of what the word michtam means, but, but no one really does know what this word means. Um, so, yes. What do you mean by written in gold? So, I mean etched in stone. I don't. I don't know. Like this is the, the, some of the interpretations that I saw. That perhaps that written it in gold on some either on on a stone or on um, papyrus on the on the cleft. Um, just come because it comes from the word ketem, according to one idea. And ketem in biblical Hebrew is gold. So what would that have to do with michtam of David, gold of David? This is just one idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, it just feels very costly to write a parak of Tehillim. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, that just feels out of place. Yeah, I hear that if something was precious, then you would maybe want to write it in, in gold. Um, I mean, people are doing crazy things with gold these days. I saw once a, a program on some people have these gold chips that they eat in their ice cream. Again, these are people who obviously have a lot, 
can do so much with their with their money. Some people put red gold in uh, certain champagnes. That's pretty costly and it goes to waste, you know. So these are yeah. uh, beautiful words of prayer. I think it makes more sense to write in gold than to consume it, but each to his own. I guess like if he wrote it as a king, then it doesn't surprise me because he was also an extravagant king. Mm -hmm. But like when I think about him like huddling in a cave, hiding from Shaul and writing to Hillam, I'm like, where would he get gold from? Mm. But again, not in a cave. Right, some of them were written when he was, right, the cave that we spoke about last week was before he was king. Um, once he was king, he could do anything. He had much more, obviously, had resources. Um, so it's a question. It could be that it's not even gold at all. It could be that it's just etched in stone or that it's a melody and then it's a totally different idea. Okay, so... Um, so he starts out by saying Garvey, and this is actually um, different than many Tehillim that those of you who studied wouldn't have seen. Already in the first line, he starts with a content, whereas many other Tehillim, he would have said Michtam of David, and then only from the second verse, he would have come to, to the content of what's going on. So he starts out by saying, guard me, O God, and he uses here the word El, which has to do with God's powers, in whom I take refuge. Now, verse 2, you should say to Hashem, you are my master. I have no good but in you. What is he saying in verse 2? What do you think he's saying? Right here. Maybe that the deepest or highest form of good is with Hashem. then you're, you have no good but in you, like you are the ultimate source of goodness. Is that what you mean, Sarah? Yes. Okay, right? So many of the commentators went in that direction. I have no good but in you. Meaning, right, my, my good is, is, is nothing but from you, right? Like you are the ultimate source. You're the only source of, of goodness. Um, and then when he says, you should say, who is he talking to? Who, who is it you should say? And in the Hebrew, I'll just mention, it says, he's feminine singular, you should say to Hashem. Any thoughts? Is it his soul? His soul. Because he says in other places, like Barchi Nafshi, like he tells his soul to praise Hashem, right? Absolutely. So that's definitely one of the ideas. Many of the commentators. Do we lose her? Hello? I don't know if Please? I thought I thought I lost you for a second. It might have just been my connection, though. No, I think we all dropped off for a minute. Okay. Hi, we're back. Yeah. I don't know what happened there. We all back? Not all back. Are we all back? I think so. 
Okay. Let me go to the screen. Okay. Um, so, right, so one idea is that he's talking to, to his soul. Um, and as you said, there are, it's, not the, it's not the only time. We've seen this in other places um, as well. So when we look at Rashi, Rashi says, Rashi says two things. He actually starts out saying, David addresses the congregation of Israel. Right, so this is when you're referring to the feminine singular, he's actually talking to um, Knesset Israel. Okay? And he says, it is your duty to say to Hashem, you're my master and you have the upper hand in all that befalls me. Another explanation, you should say to Hashem, you're my master. He, David, was saying this to his soul. So that's as you were saying, uh, Nora. Now, going back to, to verse 2, as you can see, we've got an A and B option here. Right? There are two different translations. Um, and the Hebrew is ambiguous, and that's where we get very different translations from each other. The second one here is, you should say to Hashem, or to, yeah, you should say to Hashem, you are my master. My good is not incumbent upon you. What do you think he's saying there? What does that mean? Any thoughts? What does it mean my good is not incumbent upon you? Not sure, but I'm happy to give it a shot. Um, uh, maybe that, like, I'm not going to wait. I don't know, like, if you think about the different ways that Hashem shows up in our lives, like, I'm not going to wait for some miracle from Hashem, but so it's not, like, dependent on you, but rather I'm going to find joy through connecting to you. So it's not incumbent upon you. I mean, it's not your responsibility. I need to create my own good. I think a okay. little bit. Okay. Can I hear that? Anyone else? I also have a very different translation in front of me. I'm also using the same um, Mine says, yeah. um, you are my master. You are not obligated to benefit me. So that goes with the second one. Right, incumbent. It's not incumbent upon you. It's not your obligation, right? So why one idea is that you don't have to, so I will have to do it myself, which I have a little bit of a hard time thinking that would, in a prayerful, right? He says, you're, you're the God in whom I take refuge. And then, well, to you, I have to find my own good. Uh, any other thoughts? I guess not necessarily like I have to find my own good, but more so like it's not your responsibility to connect with me, it's my responsibility to connect with you. So the good here is the connection. Mm -hmm. 
obtain my good, the my bit, like my good. It's really my benefit or my good is not upon you, but rather I need to search out for it. So you're you're really talking like I, I hear you're saying you're really um, highlighting his responsibility. Okay. I see it. I don't know if this is exactly what Sarah is going for or like tangentially related, but I see it as being a form of humility as well to say, it's not your responsibility to do good for me. So, but it's a prayer. So when I'm asking for good, like I'm, I'm recognizing that it's not like you have to do this for me. I'm asking. Mm. So I guess maybe like taking yeah, the rest. It's more, so it's a request ask for the relationship. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in that vein, more or less, I've got who's just joined us? Hi, Ellery. Hi, nice to see you. Where are you? Where are you coming in from? Um, I'm in Ramada Sharon right now. You live in Ramada Sharon? Yeah. So welcome. We're we're doing a chapter sixteen in Tehillim. Okay. Sorry. Okay. So let's see what Rosh has said about that. So he says, "My good is not incumbent upon you." He says, "The benefits that you do for me, it is not incumbent upon you to bestow them upon me." because you do not benefit me on account of my righteousness. So I, I also think he's taking that approach that Nora was talking about, that humility. He's saying it's not that you have to give it to me because of my righteousness. It's not like this ATM, like I did X and I did so many mitzvot and I was so righteous that you have to give me the good, right? I think he's coming from a very, very humble place. So the question is, where is that good coming from, right? In the first translation, we were discussing the fact that he's saying to Hashem, my good is only from you. You're, the, you're my sole beneficiary. You are the source of, of all goodness. But here he's taking a more humble approach of, you know, it's not because of my righteousness that I deserve all this good or that I'm receiving all this good from you. Um, continuing to, to verse 3, says the holy ones who are in the earth and the mighty ones in whom is all my delight. And as you can see here grammatically, even in the English, right, we don't usually start a sentence with for the dot, 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 right? And I think what um, is happening here, I think it connects us back to verse two, right? You should say to Hashem, you're, um, if we go with a second approach, you should say to Hashem, you're my master, my good is not incumbent upon you. But rather, it's not because of my righteousness, but rather for the holy ones who are in the earth and the mighty ones in whom is all my delight. Um, Rashi says there, for the holy ones who are in the earth, for the sake of the holy ones who are buried in the earth who walks before you with sincerity and the mighty ones in whom is all my, they're the mighty ones in whom is all my delight and for whose sake, all my necessities are accomplished. So he's being, it's not that 
the good that I have is not because of my righteousness, but rather it's because of the holy ones and the mighty ones. Like all the people who came before me who are righteous and are now buried in the earth, um, it's for their sake that my necessities are accomplished. I'm kind of um, suckling, I'm like nursing from, from the shefa, from that abundance that they have brought down to this world. It has nothing to do with me, right? I'm saying it from a very uh, humble, humble position. I'm going to mention that this is one of the Tehillim that is often used, was used, for example, last week we got together on Yom HaZikaron. Um, was one of the Tehillim that was read during many of the ceremonies. Again, for this reason, um, realizing that we're not here if it wasn't for the people who had sacrificed themselves uh, for us to be here in, in this land. Um, so, um, so that definitely uh, hits home, being so close to Yom HaZikaron and then Yom HaZikaron, which is a quick transition, um, we wouldn't have Independence Day if, um, if we didn't have Yom HaZikaron because of all the people that, that fought for us to, to be here. Um, so that's the Rashi, and that connects back, going back to the chapter, connects two and three together, okay? I'm curious, Sarah, what is your Tehillim say there, two and three? Um, so, uh, three says for the sake of the holy ones who lie in the earth and for the mighty, all my desires are fulfilled in their merit. Okay. So that's very similar to, that's actually almost word for word Rashi. Um, very similar idea. Okay. Um, continuing. The with verse four, he says like this, he says, may the duties of those who hasten after another increase. I will not pour their libations of blood or will I take their names upon my lips. Now, you see the parentheses there, there is a play in words um, in this verse, right? It says, may the deities of those who hasten after another i.e. another deity, someone who is other than God, increase. He's kind of mocking them. It's a bit sarcastic there. It's as if he's giving them a blessing that their deities should increase. Now, the plan words deities should have been atzvotehem, and the Hebrew is yirbu atzvotam. Okay? Atzvotam also has the connotation, the same uh, root as sorrows, etziv. Okay, so he's kind of blessing them, saying, may their deities increase, i.e., and their sorrows. I guess the more deities there are, the more sorrow there is, right? There isn't one source of everything. There's the source of the sun and the source of the water and the wind and, and so on. Um, and perhaps this was said at some point, um, King David overcame some kind of, pressure to bow to these um, um, because obviously he's mentioning it here. Why would he mention it when he's talking to God? And then he continues in verse five, he says, Hashem is my allotted portion and my share, meaning not those deities who I won't even 
say their names on my lips and I won't pour their libations or bread, but rather it's about my connection to Hashem. Hashem is my allotted portion, my share. You hold my lot, right? That's who, that's where my life is. And then he goes on, verse six, he said, pleasant portions have fallen upon me and I have a good inheritance. Um, here, again, we've got to plan words. Um, the word chavalim, do you see that in verse 6? Mm-hmm. You all see that? Chavalim. So the word chavel, modern Hebrew, anyone? What's chavel? Friend, right? What's that? Is it friend? chavalim uh, with a reish. A chavel is a, is a rope. Okay, it also means a, a portion of land. And that's because they used to measure portions of land with, with ropes. Okay, so pleasant portions have fallen upon me now, inheritance. But chavalim has another meaning as well. Chavalim also means uh, like birthdays or contractions in Biblical Hebrew. Have you ever heard of Chavlei Mashiach? Right, are you singing the song, Nora? <laughs> I don't know the song, but uh, I know, I know the like, uh, I thought you were nodding your head and I, because I got the song in my Chavlei Mashiach. So Chavalim are also like birth pangs or contractions. And in that case, it's very strange because what does it mean pleasant contractions have fallen upon me and I have a goodly inheritance, right? And it's, it's like a very interesting kind of idea. And perhaps the idea is that like, what are contractions about, right? What are like, when we talk about the pangs of Mashiach coming, on one hand, they're extremely painful, right? As I have three children, Ken and Ara, and birth is a painful thing. It's quite a process. Um, and I remember when I was going to birthing classes, you know, one of the things that they kept telling us is like, remember other pain that we get. And usually we tighten up. You have to remember that this pain is every, every pain, every pain is getting you closer to giving birth to your baby. And so these are different kinds of pains. You're not the pain that show us that something is wrong, right? We often, like, we see bleeding pain in our body. We get very uh, stressed out, a lot of anxiety around pain. Um, But here, this is the kind of pain that is supposed to get us closer to a rebirth. Um, So when he says, pleasant contractions have fallen upon me and have a goodly inheritance, perhaps one idea that we can take from it is that you know, when we know that there is a purpose to something, when we know there's a goal, that we're on a mission, right? When there's, um, when there's a why, we can always deal with a how, right? Viktor Frankl brought that a lot uh, from Nietzsche when he, in his uh, book, um, um, Man's Search for Meaning, right? He spoke about when a person has a why, they can deal with almost any um, how, so here too, perhaps what King David is saying is that the contractions become pleasant when I know that I'm getting closer to you because you are my core. 
entrepreneur by lot. And again, as opposed to these people who are going after different deities, they're useless. They don't really have any power. The one that has the ultimate power, the source of all good, um, even the things that seem like contractions to me, like pangs, um, they're pleasant because I understand they're ultimately for my good, they're ultimately for maybe even my rebirth in, in different ways. Um, he continues, I'm continuing verse 7. I will bless Hashem who counseled me. Even at night, my conscience instructs me. Now, literally, right? Even at night, my kidneys instruct me. And kidneys in biblical, uh, in, in the Tanakh, are often the things that have to do with, they, they show up with salt, with uh, good advice. I wanted to ask you any thoughts of why the kidneys, why are they the conscience? Why are they, what do they have to do with, with good advice? Any thoughts? Doesn't it say in the Talmud that, I don't know what it says, but something about kidneys and psychology that like was then recently verified by some like neurological research. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I feel like there's something there. So you have some homework for us. <laughs> I would love to know what, uh, what that is about. But what is the kidney? What do the kidneys do? They filter your blood. They filter, right? They're, they're filters. They make sure that the good stuff remains and that the, all the toxins kind of come out. Um, very, very important organs. Um, so perhaps that's what has to do with, their, with my conscience, right? When I have to really figure out and advise myself of like what, what's the right thing to do, I have to sift through um, the good and the bad. So perhaps that's what that was, you know, a thought that I that I had. That's like the connection that that I could make there. Um, I will say that about two weeks ago, someone very special. I don't know if you've heard about him here in the Israeli news. Passed away, Rabbi Yeshayahu Haber, who um, uh, many years ago had collapsed on the street, got to the hospital, and was told his kidneys failed, and. Um, and, and back then, you had to wait five to seven years to get a kidney transplant from someone who had passed on and had to be the right match and so on. Um, and he didn't know what he was going to do. He, was, he really wasn't doing well. And, and eventually, a friend of his actually um, gave him, uh, donated one of his kidneys. And when he was in the hospital, he saw a boy that didn't make it because he couldn't find any uh, a transplant. And he decided that he was going to dedicate his life to kidney transplants. And he organized um, uh, a, a, a nonprofit organization here in Israel about six or seven years ago, um, getting people to, um, to donate a kidney, healthy people to donate a kidney to other people. Um, and they realized it's a pretty safe procedure. Um, and by today, I think there's and something people who have donated a kidney um, because of what he had set up. Um, and unfortunately, he passed away from the coronavirus about two weeks ago. 
he was a big, big tzaddik in Israel. Thanks to him, today is the number one country per capita of people receiving kidney um, organ donations from, from living people, uh, So, which is pretty special. So it's important to mention him um, in light of this kind of thought about, about kidneys and how important they are. It's completely obviously changes people's um, way of life when they don't have to be on dialysis, which is a pretty grim um, kind of reality. Um, so I will bless Hashem who counseled me even at night, my kidneys or my conscience instructs me. So he is able to kind of go deeply inside, even at night, talk about it metaphorically, even at a time when, when things are unclear, when things are dark for me, even then, um, my kidneys instruct me, he's able through his own physicality, through going inside to hear that small voice of God instructing him in the right path. Continuing verse 8, I have set Hashem always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not falter. The Hebrew, Shiviti Hashem tamid kimini bal emot. But he says here, and this is a famous part of the Pasuk, Shiviti Hashem tamid. And how many people have seen it when you um, come to, uh, to a shul? A lot of times that Pasuk is uh, as if the entrance of the shul or in the parochet um, at the at the Aron. Anyone ever seen that? Shiviti Hashem Lanamid? No? Um, so I've said Hashem always before me. Um, and this is something about living with Hashem always, meaning not only when we're praying, not only when we're learning Torah, but in our business dealings, in the way that we interact with other people, in the way that I'm with myself, Hashem, I always said Hashem there before me. Another interpretation of that, the Hebrew is very interesting. Shviti, okay? The word Shviti doesn't mean to set something. It comes from the word, one interpretation from the word Shaveh. Shaveh means equal. Shviti perhaps could mean here is I try to make myself equal like God, equal to God, which could be kind of chutzpahdik, right? And the question is like, what does it mean that I try to make myself equal to God? What is it about power? What is it about? So one idea that I want to share with you, maybe um, you've encountered this before, is a similar question that comes Rav Chama, son of Rabbi Hanina, further said, what means the text you should walk after Hashem, your God? But how can you walk after God? What does it mean? Is it then possible for a human being to walk after the Shekinah? Has it not been said, for the Lord thy God is a devouring fire? But the meaning is to walk after the attributes of the Holy and Blessed be here. And he, here too, to be an equal to God, to try to be equal to God and God's attributes. Meaning what? As he clothed the naked for the strength and Hashem and the Lord God made Adam and his wife coats of skin and clothed them, so you should clothe the naked. The Holy One, blessed be he, visited the sick. And then it talks about coming to Abraham, so you too should visit the sick. The Holy One, blessed be he, comforted mourners. And then it talks about after the death of Abraham and God blessed Isaac, you, should, you too should come for us. The Holy One, blessed be he, buried the dead. 
um, talks about how he buries Moshe, so you should also bury the dead. So Shiviti Hashem Lenigdi Tamid, the idea that we should make ourselves our similar, almost equal to Hashem, um, having these, these attributes of loving kindness, just as Hashem does for us, we too should have the same kind of attributes. We should try to make ourselves equal, quote unquote, to God in that way. Any questions about that? Does that make sense? I just okay. want to chime in. I like went to look because I didn't want to sound like a complete idiot. I went to look for what I was talking about. So basically, yeah. like there is a lot in Chazal that the kidneys are associated with like decision making and advice and whatever. Um, and then I found this article in 20 that was published in 2017 that was written by like a cognitive psychologist. I don't know. I haven't like looked through the whole thing, but basically, yeah, he was talking about how like people who have kidney disease have like a lot more cognitive deficits and like things that you wouldn't necessarily associate with kidneys. So I just remember when this came out that someone mm -hmm. sent it to me and there was like some article about how Can cool it is that, no, I can't play right now. I'm talking in class. Um, mm. How cool it was that like the Talmud talked about the link between cognitive function and kidneys. And then like now they're like starting to find some evidence of that. So anyway, that's what I was referring to. I don't know like the details of it, but Beautiful. it's like- <laughs> Thank you. I would love to see that, Nora. I would actually love to, if you can post any of the article in the chat or something, I would love to see that. But uh, so it's not even the Talmud, it's here. It comes up in the Tanakh itself very often. Um, so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Continuing, right? So I've set Hashem always before me or try to make myself equal before Hashem because he is at my right hand and will not falter. And we saw this last week, standing in someone's right hand as being someone's right hand man. Because he is at my right, right hand, I will not falter. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My flesh also dwells in safety. Right, so here we're talking about different aspects, right? When Hashem is with me, you know, on all levels, emotionally, spiritually, physically, right? Heart, soul, and flesh, right? I, I feel the potential of all those. They all rejoice when Hashem's with me. For you shall not forsake my soul to the grave. You shall not allow your pious ones to see the pit. Right, he says, I know you let me live to my fullest. Um, Perhaps also, and this is another meta more metaphorical idea, maybe not physically to the grave, um, but maybe he's asking Hashem that he should live fully and not be dead while he's living, right? He, in verse 11, he says, you should let me know the way of life, the fullness of joys in your presence. Um, Esther Perel, which is uh, one of the renowned um, couples therapists, she lives in the States now. She's originally Belgium. She was born to uh, Holocaust survivors. And she always says that she makes a distinction. She learned this very early on as a child when she saw her parents' generation. Um, she said there was, there was a big difference between the people who didn't die um, and the people who, who lived, right? She said there's people who didn't die, but like they, they, they really were, were living dead people but there were people who actually lived um, fully after the Holocaust. And, and maybe here too, he's, he's saying, don't, don't let me die physically, but also metaphorically or 
spiritually, emotionally, like you should let me know the way of life, the fullness of joys in your presence. There is pleasantness standing at your right hand forever. And perhaps he wants it to be a little more mutual, just as he asks God when he, sa he says in verse eight that God is at my right hand. He's saying to God, place me at your right as well. That's a pleasant experience. But let me feel a little more of that mutuality uh, of standing next to each other, quote unquote. Any questions before I continue with, with another uh, couple of ideas? Um, Hadassah, no? why okay. does it specify yeah. um, the right hand? Is there any significance around that? Like it could have said the left hand or it could have said Hashem's hands. Nahan. Last week that the right hand was when we say like a right hand man, right? It's someone who stands at your, I'm a lefty, so, but usually the right hand is the dominant hand, right? And someone standing at your right hand is as if they're acting as your dominant hand with you, right? They're giving you a lot of force, that's why. Um, stand. God's right hand, again, it's that mutuality, but also we know that the right has to do with chesed. So perhaps David is also asking to stand on God's right, meaning receive chesed from a kadosh Hu. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Okay. Great. So what I want to do with the time that is remaining is I want to go back to the idea of, and that does relate to the parasha also last week and uh, Shabbat, when he says for the holy ones who are in the earth. So the idea that we saw, the Rashi that we saw in the translation that, um, that was read here, for the holy ones who are buried in the earth. But there's another interpretation for the holy ones who are now living in the earth. He's saying it's still that humble position of it's not from because of me, but rather all the abundance comes for, for the sake of the holy ones who are now living in the earth. And what I'd like you to do, to take a minute and do, is to maybe write in the um, comments, in the chat box, what are some uh, ideas or what are some of your thoughts like of what makes someone holy? I'm going to stop sharing for a minute so I can look at. Mm -mm -mm. I can't find my chat box, ladies. Anyone? Where do I find my chat box? So many buttons here. More chat here. Okay. Any thoughts? Like, what comes up for you when I think when you think of someone who is holy? What kind of things come up for you? You can either write them or say. What associations? What attributes? I think to be able to separate from yourself and your perspective, and to kind of be in tune with with and empathetic towards everyone around you 
just really to you, you said empathetic yourself and your own wants, mm. desires, and mm. purpose. So, so you're using this like something as opposed to being something very selfish and in one's own world, it's being able to go out of oneself and being empathetic and really be able to be with someone else's experience. Did yeah, I hear you? I, think, I think we can try not to be selfish and to be empathetic and still be, be we can be doing good things, but still be doing them from um, a selfish place and that it's, it's our world, it's our point of view. Um, and to be able to remove yourself from that um, and look at it, look at things objectively and just do good things is holy, I think. Do you know people like that that can act objectively like that? Like, are you thinking of someone specific? No, not all the time. I don't know. think I know anyone who's just always like that. Sometimes. Yeah. You're saying it's like being able to kind of transcend one's own reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Who else? What else do you think of when you think about someone holy? I think of someone who kind of walks to the beat of their own drum, but in the sense of like, it doesn't matter. Oh. Are you there? Hey, we dropped off again, I think. Everyone's back? Okay. Who else? Any any thoughts? Can I share a thought? Please. So I, I think that holy is like people who kind of do their own thing, like they're not affected by what society is doing or what the norm is maybe, um, but like people who have a very strong internal sense, um, inter I, I don't know, moral compass or whatever, internal sense of what they should be doing. Um, I mean, obviously there are people who do their own thing in a negative way, but in, in a positive sense, when people are able to follow their own um, like internal sense of guidance rather than relying on what is the norm around them. Hello? Sorry, I don't know we keep this. Was this happening before as well? I think it might just be your internet connection. Mm -hmm. keep popping in and out, but everyone else. You think it's my internet connection? Let me just double, let me just double check on it. Sorry, I'm just checking something. Should be okay. Let me, this isn't stable, okay. Sorry, so you were saying, someone who is able to? Um, just like to do, to follow their own internal sense of like what's right, rather than 
relying or being influenced by what people around them are doing. Mm. Okay. What else? What else is a trigger for you all? I've actually frequently struggled with this word holy and what that means, but I think the um, what the closest I can come is like um, someone or something that reveals more godliness and there's less obstruction to that godliness. So actually a lot of what both of you just shared, but like revealing the ultimate connection between everything, um, removing like ego and like just serving as more of like a vessel or a channel to reveal godliness. So a lot of that is like trusting your own intuition as well. Um, mm. But I've, I've frequently struggled with this word. What, what, what's the struggle? Um, I think part of it is it gets tossed around very loosely. And I mean, as we're revealing right now, I think many people have different definitions or understanding, understandings of what it means. And so I've struggled mm. with it because it gets thrown around and I'm like, what do you actually mean by that? For sure. For sure. I see that Dee posted here some noise in my background, but someone who actively works on their relationship with God and works on bettering his or herself. Amazing. Okay. All right. So I want to look at, we don't have a lot of time, but I want to see a few sources about what it means um, to clarify for us a little bit what, what that could mean. I'm sure we could find tons of, of resources on that. Um, one second. So, ah, trying to get out of the <laughs> full screen and then share screen. Okay. All right. So going down. Okay, so holiness first appears in Shemot Yutet, right? When God says to the Jewish people, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, okay? And later on in last week's Parsha, saying, um, speak to the entire congregation of the children of Israel, say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, so it's, it's like, uh, it's a mission statement for us, firstly, as a nation, to be holy and a nation of, of priests, whatever that means, right? So the question is like, what does it mean to be holy? And like, what is this? Is it a commandment? There was one idea from, it's called Sefer Haradim, which was written in the 16th century in Sfat, um, that says that it's, it's a particular mitzvah about not being too engaged in, in physical matters. Uh, but most um, commentators think that it's, it's a, something that's very general, to, to be kdoshim. Um, the Ramah, for example, in his Sefer, in the introduction to Sefer HaMitzvot, says it's like, Kedoshim to you is like saying you should keep all of the mitzvot. It's like a principle and not an actual mitzvah. Uh, I want to bring something that Abraham Yoshua Heschel said, which resonated with me. Um, he says like this. He says, it is a distortion to say that Judaism consists exclusively of performing ritual or moral deeds and to forget that the goal of all performing is in transforming the soul. Even before Israel was told in the Ten Commandments what to do, 
it was told what to be, a holy people. And that's in Shemot, right? To perform deeds of holiness is to absorb the holiness of deeds. We must learn how to be one with what we do. This is why in addition to halakha, the science of deeds, there is agadah, the art of being. Okay, so I was gonna have you do, as you can see, there's some writing questions. Maybe I'll have you write some things down so that you can maybe journal a bit later. Um, but again, the idea here that before the Ten Commandments, before we were told what to do, we were told what to be. We got, we received a goal, a mission statement. Um, that is our destination, is, is to be a holy people. But the question again is like, what, what does it mean? So I'll just read to you the questions and then in your own time, um, ponder this question. So the second one here is, is what attribute, what is an attribute that you admire which represents leading a holy life? What is a small step you can take and apply to your own daily life in order to come closer to the goal of living a holy life? And I think because holy means probably different things to, to all of us, if you can think of one attribute um, that, you, that you'd like to come closer with and take one small step, to incorporate it into your own life. I'll give you like a few seconds to just kind of ponder it and then you can expand a bit later. So I'll wait. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna continue with a couple ideas um, to end with. So I'm gonna start with the Ramban. Um, the Ramban and Vaikra Yudet. This is a very short part of what the Ramban wrote. He says like this, and the matter is that the Torah prohibited sexual transgressions and forbidden food. So the this prompt of Kedushim to you, this commandment or this mission statement here um, appears very close to all these um, sexual transgressions and forbidden foods, and that's why it was placed there. But it permitted sexual relations between husband and wife and the eating of meat and the drinking of wine. If so, a desirous person will find a place to be lecherous with his wife or many wives, or to be among the guzzlers of wine and the gluttons of meat. He will speak as he pleases about all the vulgarities, the prohibition of which is not mentioned in the Torah. And behold, he would be a scoundrel with the permission of the Torah. So the Ramban, which is in Hebrew, Naval Birshuta Torah. So the Ramban here uh, coined a term, which you may have heard before, Naval Birshuta Torah. Another translation would be a, uh, a, a vile person in the realm. It's not even the permission, in the realm of the Torah. Right, so I said there's many things that the Torah prohibited. But at the same time, there are things that are mutar, things that are allowed. Right, so there, yes, there's certain sexual transgressions um, that, that, right, a person can't marry anyone they want to marry. Um, but... At the same time, sexuality is something that's allowed. 
In terms of eating, yes, there's kosher eating and non-kosher eating, but with kosher eating, the question is, is a person gluttonous when they're eating? No. So for the Ramban, being holy is not just about keeping the mitzvot. For me, the way I'm reading is about keeping the spirit of the mitzvot. Right? So if a person uses their mouth to eat in a gluttonous way or to speak vulgarity, right, most of us probably don't imagine a holy person, someone who is cursing all day or cursing at all. Right? Someone who uses their mouth to use that kind of language or to eat in a gluttonous way. So this is a person that says, yeah, it doesn't say you shouldn't be gluttonous in the Torah. It shouldn't say that you shouldn't say vulgarities. There is no prohibition against that but in the realm of the Torah, the Torah. And being holy is like really listening to the spirit of the Torah and not just to the um, bottom line of like what to do or not to do. Okay, a person can give, we've discussed tzedakah before in my class. A person can give tzedakah, but it could give a million dollars, but it could be in such a sour face that it could really bring down a person. So is that fulfilling the obligation of, of, of tzedakah, the Ram, their mom says it's like not worth anything. Um, so it's, it's also about like the intention and like what are we doing that's beyond the letter of the law? Not in terms of um, are we being stringent on something? Not at all. But he's saying, yes, you're keeping the law, but like what's the spirit of the law? Are you keeping that? Are you being holy in the way that you're eating? Um, I have a piece here, I'm wondering, hmm, I'm gonna say it very quickly. In terms of, you know, in halakha, we have three different sections, right? We've got things that are considered a commandment, a mitzvah, there are things that are considered a, um, that are prohibited, and everything in between, like for example, eating meat, for example, um, or drinking wine, is something that's permissible. And halakha has these three different categories. But in chassidut, there's no such thing. It's much more, it's, there's no such thing as neutral. What do I mean by that? Um, I once asked a friend of mine for advice after she was married and I was about to get married. She had a whole year um, experience more than I did. And I said, can you give me one piece of advice that kind of you want to share with me? And she said that she actually took it the other way. She said, spiritually, we say that your deeds will get you close and your deeds will further you away. She said so too in marriage or in any relationship. Anything we do, there's not really anything that's neutral. So any piece of communication, so I might not be saying I might not be saying something that's negative. I might be thinking, yeah, this is neutral. No such thing as neutral. Anything that I say to my husband, anything that I say to my kids, to my parents, to anyone in my life, it's either something that gets me closer to them and, or furthers me away from them. So here too, yes, there's a whole realm of things um, in our life that's permissible, but what is that permissible again? What does that gray zone look like? Is it something that uplifts me and connects me more to God or is it something that disconnects me from God? When I'm eating gluttonously, I'm probably not any holier. Um, what does that mean in terms of, I'm going to say this briefly, but I think it's an important message because we get so many messages about 
sexuality from the world. And I was wondering whether I should bring this tonight, but I, I do think it's important. Um, this is a piece, a very short piece from a larger piece that, um, that very much, I think is, is beautiful piece, um, Rabbi Morris Lamb's The Jewish Way in Love and Marriage. And firstly, he talks about the fact that um, in Judaism, sexuality is something that is not only permissible, it's, it's mamash, almost like it's a mitzvah. Um, it's something that's beautiful, it's something that's joyous. Um, he talks about that for Torah scholars, there's a whole discussion in the Talmud about um, Torah scholars should be with their wives when they come home from yeshiva. Being, they used to be gone all week and only come home um, for Shabbat. They should be with their wives on Friday nights because Friday night is a holy day and it's very appropriate for a holy day. And he talks about, you don't have it here, how in Christianity, in ancient texts, um, a couple shouldn't be together on Friday because of Jesus and Shabbat uh, for, because of Mary and for different reasons. It doesn't go together with spirituality. And, and we know that a lot of our ideas today, um, because we've all been... Um, touched by Christianity in the countries that we live, we always ask ourselves, I think, as, as Jews, like about, for example, sexuality and, and physicality in general, the physical world, are we supposed to enjoy it or not? And I feel that on one hand, we get messages in the world of asceticism and that we're not supposed to enjoy this world and there are religions that talk about that. At the same time, we live in a secular world that's, that really pushes hedonism and sexuality is part of that. Um, and Rabbi Morris Lam here talks about uh, the mitzvah ona. There are two mitzvot that have to do with sexuality. The first one has to do with procreation, pulvo, and the second one is called ona. Ona is the mitzvah that is the husband's obligations to satisfy his wife. Um, and what is that about? He says it's about rejoice. Um, it's the highlighted parts. Rejoicing means satisfying needs, and it signifies a sensitive and caring involvement of the whole person and a genuine sense of intimacy. But and therefore, Maimonides teaches that one may not have intercourse without being mindful, sensitive, and alert. And therefore, the couple can be together when either of them is intoxicated or sluggish or in mourning, nor when one's wife is asleep, nor by overpowering her. This is the Rama we're talking about a thousand years ago but only with her consent and both are in a happy mood. Now, you should know that until very recently, and I think there are still a few states in the United States, that a woman is considered a man's uh, territory, a man's acquisition, and therefore um, he can overpower himself and he can actually rape her. Um, and it's not considered rape because she is his wife. Whereas in Judaism, it was always considered rape if a woman didn't want to be with her husband. Uh, there's a great book by uh, the former chief rabbi of South Africa based on his dissertation, and he takes a few different laws and examines them, and, and, he's, and he shows how in Turkish law and British law and American law, until very recently, there wasn't such a thing as, as uh, marital rape. Um, whereas in Judaism, it was always um, uh, forbidden. So, um, so a couple shouldn't be together when one of them is thinking of divorce, if they quarrel during the date of the daytime and have not resolved it by nighttime. And the rivet refers to this as exploitation, using one's partner as a harlot, as a prostitute, right? It's like using someone's body. You're thinking about someone else, you're thinking about divorcing, someone is 
intoxicated, so, right? When you're not fully present with each other. And I think for me, that's what um, holiness has to be with, has to do with is this idea of being fully present. It's not easy to achieve. Um, it's being fully present with oneself. It's being fully present with another person. In this case, this is just an example of sexuality. It's being fully present when we are doing anything that's it's an act, when we're praying, when we're eating, uh, when, we're, when we're having business dealings. Um, last thing that I want to bring, and that will, that will end, um, Rav Lutzato in, path, in the Path of the Just says there's a difference between, there's a whole hierarchy, um, which eventually a person can reach, he says, uh, um, a form of prophecy. And there's one piece that's like reaching uh, purity, but a higher level is holiness. And he says the difference between purity, which is kind of being an ascetic, um, abstaining from phys physical things in this world, um, as opposed to holiness, which is really being engaged in this world. Uh, we're not supposed to be ascetics. Yes, we can go do a Vipassana for a few days. We can go meditate on a mountain for a little bit of time, but really we should be engaged with other people in society, um, but really we should elevate it. So it's not, you know, it's interesting because there's, there's two extremes. There's hedonism on one side and there's asceticism on the other side. And Judaism, I think, is the one religion, I don't know, another one, that really does something very different, which is taking the physical, being in the physical, but elevating it and really making it kadosh, really making it holy by sanctifying it. So by sanctifying, again, is being present um, and being tuned into what it is that we're doing right now, um, which is a, is a difficult goal. I, it's, it's not easy, but I, I think it's something to, to aspire to. Um, I'd love to hear some comments you know, any thoughts, questions, uh, anything that's something that you've taken, uh, that you've taken from this. Thanks, Sadas. That was really lovely. Um, I was thinking about this journaling prompt that you gave us. And mm -hmm. I, I liked what you said about being fully present. What came up for me when I was thinking about that is just like, I think especially in in this time where we're spending so much time in like 2D over computers and like online in order to connect to people, I'm finding that my mind gets so distracted and it's so hard to stay present. Like even when I'm on Zoom, it's like so tempting to like check messages and do all these other things. And so, um, so I'm just I'm thinking a lot about like the ability to stay focused and present um, and like narrow the attention and to like really be with what's happening. Thank you. So you're taking it very, very uh, specific, even to this time, um, even in Zoom meetings, like really just being focused um, on the conversation that, that's being had, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Zoom is not the most conducive thing to being present, I have to say, and that's why it's important for me to get more conversation going what I was hoping to do initially, but then I realized I didn't have time, is actually to have breakout rooms and for people to have chavrusa with each other and discuss those questions. And hours, I think, not enough for that. 
um, but I'm constantly trying to figure out how we can all be more present in the conversation um, so that it is meaningful because it is, it's very, the one, you know, really positive things about, about teaching is that I can't focus on, on anything else and I actually have to be present. But when you're a passive listener, then we're distracted by all these things that are, that are going on. So for sure. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Thank you. Thank you very Pleasure. much. Pleasure. You all have a good night. You too. And um, do you all have my email if anyone wants to? I think some of you do. Um, or my WhatsApp. You're you're welcome to to text to to write me. Um, I would love to continue the conversation. Okay. Have a good night, everyone, or a good day. <laughs> Thank you, Adas. Well, too.